This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Well, recording this and there's no sun up. Which is always a very strange, a sensory, <laughs> it's a weird sensory thing when we record and it's not daytime. Yeah, actually, I, ha- I had uh, our friend of the show, Kelsey Hennigan, walk by the place where I'm recording this right now. And I'm recording in the dark, um, which gives me like NPR vibe a little <laughs> bit, which obviously if you're listening through these first, what, 25 seconds, you can tell we're not going for NPR. But it just makes me feel that way. That, like I'm in a dark room like Terry Gross is whenever she interviews her her uh, interviewees. Live from MILB.com in New York, I'm Tyler Mon. Yeah. <laughs> hey, yeah, WMILB in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Oh, man. Uh, so, hey, welcome in this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast from MILB.com, episode number 174. He is Sam Dykstra. My name is Tyler Mon. We're bringing you all the latest in minor league baseball. And uh, we got some good stuff coming up on the show today. Sam caught up with Gwinnett Braves pitching coach, the beautifully named Reed Cornelius today. Um, we'll talk. Gwinnett uh, Stripers. That's oh, yeah. What, what, what did I say? Did I call them the, the Gwinnett Braves? As, yeah. What, what year is this? Old Habits Die Who hard. am I? Old, what, yeah. What's going on here? Welcome to the uh, show before the show podcast sorry, from 2017. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Stripers. My very first general manager in minor league baseball is the general manager in Gwinnett. And now I feel terrible. I'm sorry, North. I really, I didn't mean that at all. I'm going to get an email from uh, from North Johnson with the Gwinnett Stripers. Like, hey, man, what's your deal? Um, so the Gwinnett Stripers. <laughs> I've had a very long couple of weeks. My brain is. Yeah, you have. Like you should. We should actually tell capacity. people where you are right now. Because it's really cool. Like, well, you should let people know how much you're doing to, like, broadcast this podcast right now. Yeah. Well, where, I, where are you right now, Tyler? I am currently in uh, Cocoa Beach, Florida. Uh, we're actually set up at a very cool uh hotel situation we're like right on the beach in Cocoa beach which is cool and it's great because you can wake up every morning and look at the beach and then go all right i don't have any time to go to the beach today i gotta go do stuff <laughs> for work so that's a, that's not a tease at all uh but i'm broadcasting the 2018 women's baseball world cup for wbsc the world baseball soft Con- softball confederation um it is the eighth edition of the women's baseball world cup it is my second edition as a broadcaster for the women's baseball world cup and yes women's baseball it is not softball it is women's baseball they play on fields full-size base paths 60 foot six inch mound uh small ball large field not a big ball and a small field as uh the uh legendary uh u.s veteran uh malika underwood says and this is uh it's a really cool competition there are 12 countries um which matches the largest field in the history of the tournament um it'll be 50 games we're actually producing and streaming all 50 games this year for the first time in tournament history um and uh, it's been a lot of fun. We just got started today. We're recording this on Wednesday the 22nd. So I had a game this morning between Japan, which is the number one ranked team uh, in the world. They've won five straight world championships in this tournament, and the Dominican Republic. And uh, the Dominican Republic, first time entrant into the tournament, their team, 
they held Japan tight. I mean, it was a 2-0 game. These are only seven inning games. It was a 2-0 game with two outs in the bottom of the fifth, and then it was a handful of mistakes, and it kind of slipped away and ended up as an 8-0 loss. But, I mean, for your first game in the tournament, and they're like, congratulations, welcome to the competition. Go play the Yankees of this version of baseball. <laughs> um, the, the DR was, was fun to watch, and I think they're – gonna hang in make some noise in this tournament um so yeah we had uh six games today we'll have six games a day for the next four days um we do broadcast double headers um every day of the the first uh, few days of the tournament it's myself uh craig durham a former radio voice in a handful of minor league markets uh dunedin uh mobile he was in helena for a little while and for the first time ever we have a woman broadcaster uh, at the tournament, Kirsten Carbach, the phenomenal radio voice of the Clearwater Threshers, is here. Um, and Kirsten also, uh, her... she writes for the site, too. And she does. She does the Florida State League notebook for the site. Friend of the site. Mm-hmm. Um, Very I much probably, so. I probably should have interviewed Kirsten for the podcast this week. Um, maybe next week. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like that but, idea uh, a lot, and I'm writing that down right now. <laughs> but, uh, Kirsten, it's funny because we met yesterday, and it was like the Spider-Man meme. It was like Kirsten and I have heard about each other for so long, and we've both been doing like bizarre writing and broadcasting things forever. And we finally met, and we're like, hey, I feel like I know you already. Um, so Kirsten's here. She is the uh, the first woman broadcaster uh, on the Women's Baseball World Cup, which is really cool. She did a uh, doubleheader today and uh, did fantastic work because that's all that Kirsten Carbuck does. Um, so that's really cool. So she's here just for the opening round. Um, and then we've got uh, different, some different broadcast arrangements for what they call the Super Round, which is the next round, and then our championship um, coming up on Friday. But, uh, yeah, and this is on the heels of I did the U15 Baseball World Cup the last couple of weeks in Panama. So it's been like uh, I bought a house. I closed on a house on August 6th, and then on August 8th, I left the country for like a month. <laughs> yes, it's going to say. Well, this is cool. And then you don't go. See you later. Yeah. Don't get to see it. Yeah. No, well, yeah. You know somewhere in Denver there is property <laughs> that is yours. Apparently. <laughs> that's what they tell me. Um, and that's where all of my belongings are in boxes. So I have that to look forward to when I get back. Uh, but yeah, so it's been cool. And uh, if you do want to check out the streams, if you want to tune in, uh, we got day games. So that's always fun. You can waste some of your work day. Uh, YouTube.com slash WBSC. Uh, we've got our live streams there. And um, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's um, it's a different brand of baseball. It's kind of a, a more old school small ball type of ball because that's, you know, sort of what the sport is um, on this side of it. But it's fun. And these uh, there's a really cool story in the Japan Times yesterday um, that quoted J.J. Cooper, who is uh, I think he's now the editor of Baseball America. And JJ's quote was um, These are some of the most dedicated um, baseball players on the planet, the women's national teams for these various countries, because they they don't get anything handed to them it's not a sport that is played uh by most women growing up um you kind of have to be willing to sacrifice a lot in order to continue playing baseball you have to love the game a lot in order to continue pursuing baseball and not get pushed into softball and nothing wrong with softball but if you are a person who loves baseball why shouldn't american girls and women be allowed to play baseball they generally don't they generally move into softball um there was a really cool quote in an sb nation story about the the united states women's team um jennifer ring who is a professor of political science at the university of nevada reno and the author of a a book called stolen bases why american girls don't play baseball she said quote the girls who are on this team are just two-fisted fighters for the game they love and i thought that was really cool um so 
these games are fun the, the teams are really talented um and it'll be cool to see how some of these countries that have uh not been playing the women's game at a high level for very long how far they'll come along over the course of this tournament um so it'll be fun it's uh it started today on the 22nd and uh we wrap things up on august 31st so tune in waste some of your work days there you go. yeah no there There's you go the plug. I've already listened to some of it today. It, yeah, it was a lot of fun to listen and watch and today, all that kind of stuff. So I'm doing a game. There are all so this tournament's being hosted at the former uh, home of the Brevard County Manatees, the former Florida State League team, and the former the former spring training home of the Washington Nationals. Prior to that, the the Florida Marlins back in the day. Um, but these facilities, uh, these fields, the main stadium, the backfields, they've all been taken over by an organization called the USSSA, the United States Specialty Sports specialty sports association and uh ussa replaced all of the grass with artificial turf so every uh playing field at this complex is turf and not just like the grass areas the base paths the bases the home plate area there's no dirt around that uh even the mounds are artificial turf mounds it's a little bit different for this tournament. They brought in a mound that actually has like a clay insert for the the pitching lane there. But um, but I was talking about it on the broadcast today and talking about you know there just really aren't that many artificial turf playing fields in minor league baseball and started naming off. Uh, I think I only had named West Virginia, which was the only one I could think of. And then I get this message from one Sam Dykstra that said, "Oh, Brooklyn is too." And I was like, "Sam's tuned in right now. It was cool. <laughs> Great, thanks, buddy. That was uh, uh- awesome." There, there, there are two ways you could have taken that. It could have been one, like, oh, Sam's listening to this. This is great, and like it, he's helping out and maybe acting like an assistant producer. Or Sam thinks he can do this job and is trying to give me information and <laughs> Absolutely trying to. Absolutely not. <laughs> so, I, bet, I have no I idea hope he how doesn't, I do this job. So any help? He doesn't think I'm it. like well actually you it was like sir sir <laughs> no, actually no, it was good because I, I think you'll find well and i was having this conversation uh because kirsten we were talking about it yesterday when we met she said that daytona next year is uh purportedly getting artificial turf because they've had drainage issues um at that ballpark in daytona the home of the tortugas um which i'm not saying is breaking news or anything but apparently that is the rumor that's out there for daytona um so it's brooklyn um i think state college may have artificial turf i may have just made that up state college if you're listening and i made it up i'm sorry um but uh, there's only a few there's not many and so that's the thing like if you're a baseball player you generally don't play on artificial turf like ever maybe at the college level um it seems like collegiate surfaces more often than not uh if they're going to be artificial turf it happens more often at the college level but it just doesn't happen that often so that was the topic of conversation today yeah, and it, it, for anybody who listened to the Brooklyn podcast we had, uh, I talked to Carlos Cortez about that very briefly, uh, and he said he actually likes playing on the turf, which surprised me. I feel like it's so much easier to skin a knee or something like that uh, playing on that type of artificial surface. But he said you get truer bounces. It's so much easier as an infielder. You don't have to worry about something funky that happening in the true. grass. And, uh, yeah, and that's – I mean – that's why we're journalists, right? We ask questions and we get surprising answers and you learn something. So some of these players actually like playing on that type of surface and uh, hopefully it leads to truer outcomes, especially in a tournament like this when, you know, like you said, a lot of these women have been working a long time to get here uh, and you don't want games decided on a funky bounce at second base. Absolutely. So uh, if you want to tune in, tune in, let us know what you think. And uh, with that, we'll get started on this week's episode of the show before the show podcast. Three strikes is where we talk about the three most pressing issues in minor league baseball for the week. And strike one 
Big time promotions across the minor leagues over the last couple of days. Um, on the pitching side, especially Michael Kopech of the Chicago White Sox, the 12th ranked overall prospect in all of baseball, uh, has made his jump to the major leagues. Michael Kopech, a guy who on this podcast we've been fans of for a really long time. And, you know, for a while in his career, people were somewhat, I think, on the fence of whether or not he was going to get it figured out. And he has more than gotten it figured out since that trade from the Boston Red Sox to the Chicago White Sox. And um, a guy who really, not only has put it together on the field but I think has put it together off the field as well which was the the small concern coming over from the Red Sox organization Michael Kopech has graduated in the major leagues on um, the Atlanta Braves continue to graduate talent from their minor league system 2016 fourth round selection Bryce Wilson has already climbed uh, from the uh, high school ranks to the major leagues he was a 2016 pick he is 20 years old and he's made his major league debut now um but sam give me your reaction to these two promotions i think uh the beginning of the season if you would have told us that michael kopech was going to be in the big leagues probably not a surprise bryce wilson probably would have been yeah and i feel like they're both surprising at at this point in the season for completely separate reasons uh wilson like you said he's now the youngest pitcher to appear in a minor or to appear in a major league game this year i talked to him back in the spring on my braves trip um you know i felt like he was somebody who kind of gets lost a little bit in the shuffle in that brave system that we've talked about and you'll hear uh reed cornelius talk about this later he'll he'll touch on wilson but touching on guys like colby allard mike soroka uh you know max freed uh you know tuki Toussaint. there's that system is so loaded with arms that bryce wilson a fourth round pick in 26 16 who has a good fastball has a pretty good slider and an improving changeup but you know always seem to be if somebody's going to be moving to the bullpen eventually it looked like wilson coming into the year and he just answered the bell uh, almost everywhere he went he, he only lasted five starts at florida uh, got the bump up to double a mississippi numbers weren't so great he had a 3.97 era but his peripherals were so much better struck out 89 batters in 77 innings with mississippi moves up to gwinnett gets three starts there first two don't go so great sets a gwinnett record with 13 strikeouts in that third start which is amazing because again you go through all those names that i talked about who have pitched for gwinnett this year the The stripers the stripers yes we we should uh, highlight that once more just to really make sure nobody else screws it up. Uh, the fact that so many p- other I – and mean, this isn't a season record. It was like the club record for strikeouts by a starting pitcher, uh, which was really neat. And the Braves, you know, as they've done pretty much every – time this year Allard's gotten a major league start Toussaint's got a major league start Soroka was called up you know in the first half of the season uh the Braves not only are they going for it this year and trying to get you know back to NL East glory they're willing to give guys chances if they prove themselves at AAA and we're not talking about like oh we need to see 10 solid starts in a row from you if you look ready they're gonna call you up um so you know it, in kind of a vacuum to see Bryce Wilson come up so much quicker than somebody like Ian Anderson or Kyle Muller or Joey Wentz, you know, some of the other big names uh, around his age group. He, he like he passed all the tests. He did everything that they looked to do. And it kind of reminded me last year of Alan Acuna. Obviously, Wilson isn't nearly the prospect of Acuna uh, and didn't perform as well at each level that Acuna did. But last year, you know, Acuna started out of Florida, moved to Mississippi, moved to Gwinnett and got better at each level, they still didn't call him up because at the time the Braves weren't competing. Uh, they didn't need to burn service time with him. They didn't need a spot start in the outfield, something like that. Now they're, they're going all hands on deck. They're using everything that they can 
everything at their disposal. So if a pitcher coming off a 13 strikeout start in AAA looks ready and you know his slot opens up at the same time they have an opening in the major league level, they're going to use that to their advantage. And you know they did. You know Wilson came up, very much looked, you know not like a rookie. Five scoreless innings, three hits, three walks, five strikeouts. Uh, you know did everything they wanted out of him. They optioned him back the next day. That's how that goes. Uh, but. You know, the, the Braves continue to do this this season, and that's why I wanted to bring Reed Cornelius on this year, just talk about what they're doing at Gwinnett, how it's kind of different this year from last year in terms of if a guy's ready, he's getting that call this year, whereas last year they would kind of hold him back a little bit. Uh, but moving on to Kopech, you mentioned how good he's been of late. Uh, the thing with Kopech has always been you know, yes, he's going. He might have the best fastball in the in the minor leagues. Going uh, to consistently throw in the upper 90s. Going to touch 100 occasionally. Uh, that's going to lead to some crazy strikeouts. Has a very close to being a plus plus slider. Uh, that's going to work every time. You know, in the minors, racking up strikeouts. But let me show you his stats over his last seven starts with Charlotte. He had a 1.84 ERA. 59 strikeouts and only four walks. Now, it's that control that's always been a problem with him. He can blow it past anybody, uh, but it's trying to get that in the zone. Uh, he had not walked more than two batters in any of those final seven starts. Uh, his last three starts came without a walk, which is really, really interesting. Uh, but what made this a surprise for me is that the White Sox are in that position that the Braves were last year. You know, they're not competing the AL Central. Right. It's the Indians and then everybody else. It's not even close. Uh, so why bring him up now? Uh, they're not going to do it with Eloy Jimenez. Jimenez obviously didn't start the year in, in Charlotte. Kopech has been there all year. It's a little more difficult to make the case, especially as good as he's been of late, that, oh, he needs a little bit more seasoning. We're going to need to start him out at AAA again next year. But that being the case, we've seen that happen over and over and over again, whether it's Acuna, whether it's Chris Bryant a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, the White Sox being in the position that they are, I fully believed that Kopech was going to let the, the season end in two weeks in Charlotte, and then he would be back with the Knights in April. And by April 25th or so, oh, he's magically ready, and that's how it was going to go. They were going to delay his service time by an extra free agency year. They still might be able to do that. Maybe they send him back to Charlotte to begin next year and just hold him back even longer. Uh, but the fact that Rick Hahn is willing to do that now with a prospect that is really ready is very refreshing. Uh, I want them to follow through on this. I want Kopech to continue to get major league starts, continue to impress and, and get that chance that he's so well earned. Uh, he only threw two innings in his major league debut. A lot of that had to do with the rain. But in that game, he pitched against the Twins. Uh, he, again, you know, was back to his usual self throwing the upper 90s he in that game i think he had the 17 fastest pitches in the game uh, all of which were above nine, 97 miles an hour um so he's going to continue to do this i want to see him work deeper i want to see him work more into september um but in in way that wilson was surprising kopech was surprising in a different way uh and in a fresh refreshing way and in a way that i hope continues to happen uh with guys who do prove themselves at the triple a level We'll continue that conversation with strike two this week. Um, those are not the most surprising, probably, uh, uh, promotions of the 2018 season. What stands out to you right now, Sam, from 2018, maybe the most memorable or the most surprising or the most unorthodox promotions? Obviously, Juan Soto is probably the one that's grabbed everybody's attention at the major league level. Um, what else about 2018 uh, for columns and promotions has stuck out to you? Yeah, so the, 
the reason why we're talking about this is it was the Tuesday or it was the Wednesday tool shed uh, came out today. Um, and what like I, it just it seemed like everything kind of came together a little bit of a perfect storm. Kopech coming up for his reasons, Wilson coming up for his reason. I just wanted to look back in terms of what were some of the more unorthodox promotions of the year and I and I mean that in a good way I mean like there's usually a pretty well set standard of and we talked about this on the show before uh somebody starts out the year at a certain place around the all-star break they get their all-star recognition if they've done really well then they get moved up for the second half they stay there in the second half for the rest of the year that's usually how things go especially at the lower levels uh some of these guys Juan Soto you mentioned he was number one on my list uh they prove themselves and then they get bumped and then they get bumped again and then they get bumped again. And it, uh, a lot of these organizations that we're talking about, specifically the Nationals, have trusted their players. They know what they have in them. They're they're not looking for just statistics. They're looking for other things. Uh, and, you know, to, to give these guys these chances and to see them perform so well is really exciting. Uh, I'll just continue talking about Soto because I feel like he gets not lost in the shuffle, but like the shine comes off because we love the shiny new thing. Uh, we love talking about Bryce Wilson, you know, how quickly he came up. And that's kind great. Amazing to think about um, a 19-year-old and be like, ah, he's not the shiny new thing anymore. Yeah, he's he's old news, but he's 19 <laughs> still. He's still 19. He's not turning 20 until October 19, 25th. 19, he's old. He's used up. Nobody cares yeah, anymore. I, I did a tool set at the beginning of the year that was like, okay, Ronald Acuna's got called up. He's likely to be the youngest player in Major League Baseball this year. And here's all the reasons why. And here's who could even come close to beating him. And I, I put on a thing at the bottom that was like top 100 prospects who are technically younger than Acuna, very unlikely to get called up. Soto's name was on that list because at the time he was still in Hagerstown. He was in Class A. He didn't. He only played 39 games in the minors this year before they called him up as a 19-year-old and they called him up from Double A. They didn't even give him Triple A time. And right now he's hitting 289, 413, 518. He is one of the best teenage hitters we've ever seen. Uh, this race between him and Acuna to win the NL Rookie of the Year is going to be really exciting because they're both going to earn it on the merits. Uh, and I'm really, it, it's just really cool to see that. You know, he was a guy I talked to in the spring as well, and you, you could tell like this is a kid who just understands hitting. He knows exactly what he needs to do to to hit and to get those guys those chances and not use all this jargon of player development of oh he needs to do this he needs to hit this. You know, we need to see a little bit more maturity out of him. No, if you see that maturity, give them their chance, and you'll be rewarded handsomely, uh, as these guys have been. Uh, and I'll keep beating the drum for that. But some of the other unorthodox uh, promotions that, that I wrote up for that. So that was number one. Number two, I put Bryce Wilson to the majors just because, you know, being a 20-year-old, being what he is in that system, did not expect him to be in the majors this season. Really cool to see him get that chance. Number three is Lu- Luis Garcia. Uh, another Nationals prospect, a Futures gamer this year, he got bumped up to Class A advance as an 18-year-old. Uh, I remember talking to the Nationals about that, and they said, you know, yes, he, he has been an okay hitter uh, at Class A Hagerstown, but he's been mature. He's been consistent in the field. He's done everything we've asked. He continues to grow. He's ready for this challenge, and they gave it to him. And, you know, he's performed as well at Potomac as he did at, at Hagerstown, and also this promotion allows them to get him more reps at shortstop, which he so desperately needs. Uh, kind of fun little note here. He hit 297 at Hagerstown. He's hitting 297 currently at Potomac. Uh, his OPS at Hagerstown, 737. His OPS at Potomac, 751. As consistent as they get. And that's one thing they really liked in him, and one thing they're con- continuing to get it out of him out of after the 
promotion. Uh, number four, I'll just do the top five. Uh, Jonathan Loisiga uh, going from, you know, essentially coming into the year, he only had two and a third innings of experience of or at Class A or above. Uh, he was originally signed by the Giants. The Yankees kind of picked him up a couple years later after some injuries. Uh, he underwent Tommy John surgery after those two and a third innings at Class A Charleston. They gave him some rehab outings last year at the lower levels, rookie levels in Class A short season. Uh, really trusted the stuff. They add him to the 40-man. And then when a spot opens up this year, they push him again. Uh, he proved his health. The stuff is back. Uh, he's shown really, really special control, and that's something that's always going to play in the major leagues. Uh, but still, to see him get that chance after you know so little experience in the minors was really cool. So I have him at number four, and Joe Adele, who we've talked about plenty on the podcast. His ascension this year at you know he is a first round pick. Uh, but still, he is a high schooler. This is somebody who's still getting used to playing every day. Uh, and to see him go from Class A Burlington to Class A Advanced Inland Empire uh, to his current spot at Double A Mobile and at every stop show that he is a five-tool monster uh, has been really, really fun. If you get a chance, check out his Twitter page. Uh, he did this really cool kind of like and one mixtape mixtape. Uh, read of i don't know what you want to call it um but he of an outfield assist he did and it's just so good it it, as he's throwing it to third base the umpire you know declares the guy out and the music perfectly syncs up with the umpire saying woo it's it's very good it's a great use of social media and and kind of you know understanding who you are and being excited about who you are as a player uh love to see that stuff so those are the top five like unorthodox promotions I did a top 10. You can check it out on the site. Uh, it's the most recent tool shed. And starting through this week, Sam, the California League and the Midwest League have announced their awards for the 2018 season, the postseason all-star recognition and all those types of things. Um, Ryland Bannon standing out in the California League. Um, what else? Give us some highlights from these two circuits in their postseason awards. Yeah, so for the California League, you brought up Ryland Bannon. He was named the MVP. Uh, a couple things I want to bring out right from the start that are weird. A, we're talking about California League end of season all-stars already. There's still two weeks left in the season. Yeah, two weeks left in the regular season. Yeah, not that anything wild is going to happen, and a lot of the guys we talk, we're going to talk about here have actually already been promoted. That being said, things can change. You never know. It, I, I'd like to have full information before talking about like who was the actual MVP of a league in a season. Uh, so that's thing number one. That's fine. California League, Midwest League, you run your leagues however you want. Uh, number two, Ryland Bannon named the MVP of the California League. Uh, he's also named the Rookie of the Year, which is kind of funny because having a Rookie of the Year in a minor league in which yeah, it's I won't say a majority. The goal isn't there to be, you know, to return at any point. It's always kind of funny for, right. for that designation to pop up in a minor league. Right. But, I mean, it's another piece of hard for wear for Ryland Bannon. God, God bless him. Uh, but Ryland Bannon got the utility spot on the California League postseason all-star team. Couldn't even get, like, one of the positions that he actually plays. Uh, he, he, even though he's the MVP, he's technically the utility man on the postseason all-star team. Just kind of kind of funny. He did split time uh, this year between third base and second base, so I guess it kind of makes sense from that point of view. But pretty funny the other funny thing about Ryland Bannon being named the MVP of the Cal League is that he no longer plays in an organization 
that has an affiliate in the Cal League. Uh, the way he got out of the Cal League is he was traded from the Dodgers to the Orioles, part of that Manny Machado deal, uh, but still put up a really strong season during his time with Casa Advanced Rancho Cucamonga. 296 average, 402 OBP, 961 OPS, uh, 20 homers. 61 RBIs in 89 games. So certainly take all the boxes to, to make that work. And it has been a breakout first season for him. He was an eighth round pick out of Xavier in 2017. Uh, so put himself on the map, obviously, to be acquired by the Orioles for, you know, an all-star major leaguer. Uh, really cool for him. And and that, you know, not only does that translate in a bump up to double A Bowie where he is now, he was promoted immediately after the trade. Uh, but also getting an MVP award over in the Midwest League. Uh, I kind of like that the Midwest League does this. They name a prospect of the year uh, that was given to Royce Lewis, who predictably was the Midwest League shortstop on the uh, you know postseason All Star team. Uh, his Cedar Rapids teammate at the time, Alex Kirilov, also uh, given a spot in the outfield. So those are two top 100 prospects on the Midwest League end of season All Stars. MVP there is somebody who I feel like we haven't talked about that much. And, and uh, he's certainly done all the things that make you want to talk about him is Elahiris Montero. Uh, Cardinals prospect hit 321 with a 381 OBP, 910 OPS, 15, eight, 15 homers, three triples, 28 doubles in 102 games. Um, you know, somebody who's slowly come up through the uh through the Cardinals system, shown some good pop in the past, but really took things off this year. Had five five homers last year in the Gulf Coast League, bust that open to like I said, 15 this year with Peoria. Uh, he's currently with Palm Beach, uh, but he's improved now to the point where he's the number eight prospect in that Cardinal system. He was not ranked among their top 30 prospects entering the year, uh, so there's some real power from him from the right side. A good arm at third base. Uh, you know, is he going to stick there long term? We'll have to kind of see. But really exciting stuff for him from, you know, a 20 year old third baseman climbing the ladder. So uh, check those out. We'll have more of these kind of rolling in. It, these don't come from us. Like I have to stress this every year because I remember a couple of years ago, one prospect's dad reached out to me and said, why didn't you name my son the Gulf Coast League shortstop of the year? And it was not my call. I just write these up. Uh, or, or whoever we have writing them up. These come from the leagues themselves. Yeah, dads. Um, so, dads everywhere. Yeah, dads. I appreciate it, Sam? the uh, the fire. I, I'm not going to say. Just kidding. No. Uh, I'll tell you off air, Tyler. Um, yes. But the, uh, Privileged information, yeah. everyone. Yeah. Um, but no, they – so like these will roll out some of which will still come in before the before the season ends some of which will come out right when the season ends after labor day uh but keep checking back on the site and we'll obviously be tweeting these out and sharing these through all the uh, various social channels so that is our three strike segment for episode number 174 of the show before the show coming up sam is going to go to the gwinnett stripers of the AAA international league where he is going to catch up with the terrifically named stripers pitching coach reed cornelius about his talented staff in 2018 a whole lot more coming up next joining us on on this week's edition of the minor league baseball podcast is gwinnett stripers pitching coach reed cornelius uh calling into us before a, a big double header t- tonight on wednesday uh reed thanks for taking the time thank you for joining us how are you doing i'm doing good good to be here great great thanks again for being here so before we get going, I just want to kind of set the table. I was I was writing all these names down uh, before the interview started, and just to 
why I wanted to talk to you this week in particular. Uh, this is a list of the pitchers who have played for or pitched for Gwinnett this year who have also pitched in Atlanta for the Major League Club. It's probably not an exhaustive list. There's probably a few names I may have missed, but just to give it, our listeners an idea of how long that list is. Colby Allard, Wes Parsons, Max Free, Luis Gohara, Miguel Sokolovich, Evan Phillips, Tuki Toussaint, Rex Brothers, Luke Jackson, Bryce Wilson, Josh Ravin, Chase Whitley, Jesse Biddle, Chad Zabaka, Lucas Sims, and Matt Whistler have been traded to the Reds, but they also fit that category. There have been a lot of guys kind of rotating through both Gwinnett and Atlanta this year for exciting reasons. Um, what has it been like to kind of work with this staff specifically this year when you are going through that many pitchers in a year? Oh, it's, it's fun. I mean, you see the raw stuff and and for the most part, we've got uh, very mature kids. Uh, there's no excuses. They come to the park every day ready to work. They um, they feed off of each other, and they pull for each other. So it's been it's been a fun season in that regard. These guys have tremendous stuff. They have tremendous upside, and the future's looking bright for these guys. Yeah, and how much does that rub off on each other when you do see guys like, you know, we'll touch specifically on these guys later, but somebody like Tuki Toussaint who comes up pretty quick with you guys and then gets his first Major League debut, or especially Bryce Wilson this week, uh, fitting that mold as well, coming up of after I only think three starts. Uh, do guys get excited knowing that they're that close, knowing that the Braves are willing to take a chance? Is that something you feel in the locker room? Yeah, I think that they understand that uh, the hot hand – uh, will be the guy to go if if there's a need to big levels. And, you know, the Braves have shown they're not afraid to, to use a young guy with the 20-year-olds we've sent up there that have held their own. And uh, I think each one of them feel like they can do the job that it's called upon. They're prepared. Like I said, the work ethic is outstanding for these guys, and the stuff is really good. And it's just it's fun to watch as one guy's called up. It's not like a, a why wasn't it me? It's more a genuine happiness for each guy, and they're really pulling for those guys when they go up there. Yeah, and I, I think we saw a little bit of of that this week when Wilson got caught up, and just the excitement in terms of guys tweeting. I know Tuki was very excited about it, uh, so that's been really cool to see. But do you feel like this is something with the Braves' philosophy that they are willing to trust these guys, or is it just the group of prospects that they've you know, collected over the years, part of this rebuild process, it's it's just the right group, or is it so, something about an organizational philosophy that they are more willing to trust? You know, somebody like Wilson, who's 20, Mike Soroka, who's uh, around the same age, Colby Allard, 2021. 20, uh, is that an organizational thing, or is it just this specific group of prospects, you think? I think it's a combination of both. I think it's the evaluation of the kids and the stuff, and then the fact that these guys are made right. It, there's no no doubt in their minds that they're going to succeed and there's no excuses if they come back hey i didn't pitch well all right let's get back to work or you know what i threw well i felt good there's not a need right now let's go back to work and there's never a, a moment where you see them pouting or, or see them down you know they're, they're constantly on the grind constantly doing what they need to do and preparing to to help in any way yeah and what kind of conversations do you have when they come back because somebody like you know, Tuki Toussaint pitched six strong innings in his debut. Um, I think only gave up one run. Bryce Wilson didn't give up any runs in his debut, got optioned the next day. Uh, what conversation do you have with them when they show back up in your locker room? And it's like, you did as well as you probably could, but here you are anyway. Yeah, it's just basically 
hey, the need was there. You you went up and did the job, and you're back here. Just be prepared for the next time because it could be tomorrow. You know, it could be five days from now. It could be six days from now. It could be a week. But the bottom line is to, to not anything that would obstruct your vision or your goal of going back there and your work process and the preparation to go back up there and do the job. You know, you may be pitching the best and you pitch today and that need is tomorrow. So it may not, it might be the next guy. That's just the, the, the way the, uh, the game falls in that regard. Each continue to, to do your work, you know, prepare as best you can. When you take the ball here, go out and do the job. And that's basically the way we look at it. It's, you know, it could be anybody at any time right now that's pitching well, and you just have to be prepared when your name's called. Yeah, and, and speaking of somebody who got their name called this week, as we mentioned, Bryce Wilson uh, got the call up this week, became the youngest pitcher to appear in a minor league game this year, uh, or a major league game, excuse me, um, which I think took a lot of people back because he started the year at Class A Advanced Florida. You got him for three starts. Like I said, he's been optioned back, so you'll probably get him for a few more here. Um, the last thing he did before he got called up was set a Gwinnett record with 13 strikeouts. That's a pretty good way to push your way to the majors. But what did you see in him in those first three starts that told you, uh, you know, maybe he was major league ready considering where he started the year and uh, where he is as a pitcher now? He throws strikes with the tremendous fastball. He's not afraid. He's coming at you. He's like, here I am. Get it. And, you know, he's got power with the fastball. He's still uh, – fine-tuning his secondary pitches. He has thrown some very good change-ups, and the slider has given us some depth at times. And like I said, it's about being consistent with those two pitches and having the trust that he does in this fastball. Because I tell you, the last game we saw him here uh, before he went to the big leagues, he could have pitched just with a fastball and probably won that game because it was an impressive start. And he was he's missing bats. He's moving it to both sides of the plate, up and down. And... Like I said, with the power that he has, he was just he was beating hitters, and it was, it was a great night for him. Yeah, and in terms of working on those off-speed pitches for him, uh, specifically the changeup, uh, what do you need to do with him to make that a kind of major league ready pitch and something that he can trust to kind of throw whenever and kind of round out that profile? Yeah, he just has to keep using it in the game. The best experience he's going to gain is when he's out there facing hitters and watching his big league debut. He threw some good changeups. And uh, you see the, there's a little sink to it. Um, it's a little bit firmer than some change-ups. But if, you, if he throws it aggressively and gets, you know, um, good hand steam at the end, he gets good action at the plate, which is what, you know, what we want. And sometimes he, you see guys swing and miss. Sometimes they put it in play. And basically we're looking for him to get, get him to miss-hit it. So he doesn't have to throw another pitch and get him out on that pitch. But it's just a, a matter of him continuing to work on it on the bullpen, in the bullpens and continuing to use it in the games because if he doesn't throw it, it's not going to get any better. But he has a tendency, you know, to, to rely on that fastball. And if that fastball is working, there's no reason not to rely on it. But to keep in mind, hey, I still need to, to use some change-ups and pick good spots to use them in the, uh, in, the, in the counts and in the lineup. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and moving on to another guy who made his debut nine days ago from when we're recording this, uh, Tuki Toussaint, uh, kind of another spot start. It was a day start, uh, got sent down pretty quick. But uh, he's been with you guys for six starts so far. I, I talked to him at the Futures game this year, and a big thing for him going back to his days, even with the Arizona Diamondbacks, is, has kind of been controlled. The stuff has always been there. Uh, fastball is electric. Curveball is one of the best I've ever seen in the Myers. Uh, but it's just in terms of getting that over the plate, getting it into the strike zone. That seems to be an improvement he's made this year. What have you guys done with him to kind of work on that and, and harness the stuff that has been so good, obviously, to push him to the majors? You know, I think they did a great job with him when he was in double-A. There's Luella down there, uh, had him for a good bit of this season. And uh, when Tukey came up here, he's been in the strike zone. He's shown strikes. He's been aggressive. Um, the biggest thing that Tukey talks about and, and works on here lately is just uh, keeping his posture going to the plate and allowing his, you know, sometimes he gets a little more bent at the waist and he drops a little bit in the slot and the ball runs rather than sinks. When, he's, when he stays upright, a little bit taller uh, with his posture, the ball sinks really well. And, you know, he, like I said, he's been aggressive in the zone also, strong strikes, and, you know, it's just a matter of him getting, again, more experience out there on the mound. And that's basically what most of these guys need. They just need to continue to go out there face it or see how their stuff plays, uh, remember their strengths, and, and work on the weaknesses when, when the opportunity presents itself. Yeah, and uh, one other guy make his major league debut latter half of the season, but has been with you guys pretty much all year. Everybody we've talked about so far has come up late, but Colby Allard has been with you guys pretty much all season. Uh, continues to put up impressive numbers. The, the thing on the scouting report with him is he's always going to pitch in the zone kind of in a different way to Tukey. Uh, he's always going to fill up the zone. He's always going to you know, compete out there and, and put up strong numbers. Uh, the stuff isn't quite as electric as some of these other guys, but you know, he's got a 2.80 ERA this year. I think that's fifth in the IL. Uh, what allows him to make that, that package work if he's not going to be throwing elite velocity or things like that? Uh, how has he been able to be so successful at the minors top level this year? I think his fastball, while the radar gun doesn't say it, it's as electric as some other guys, it, it plays up a little bit. It's got good ride to it or hop, if you want to say that. It seems to jump on hitters in the strike zone. Um, seems to have good carry through the strike zone. And he's able to move it from down the way to righty to up and in to righty and stick that fastball in there. And the changeup has improved and still working on the breaking ball. And, and as that package continues to improve, he's going to continue to get better. But the guy's in the strike zone. He's not scared. He attacks hitters, and he really relies on his fastball. And he, he can get by with some high fastballs, and he's pitching at the top of the zone, even though the radar gun says it's not quite the fastball some of the other guys have, it still plays up. And like I said, there's no fear in this guy. He comes to the ballpark ready to pitch, and he's like, I'm ready to throw some zeros up. Let's go get him. Then he hits some spots, gets him out. <laughs> and that's basically every time he approaches the game, it's not about missing basketball when he hits some spots and gets him out. And that's what I think makes him so successful. And is that something you guys talk about with him? You know, somebody that you know, may not have the stuff to, to get strikeouts that they should be pitching more to contact? Or is that something you feel like something either Colby or other pitchers to learn on their own that they are going to be more contact pitchers? Yeah, we encourage them to, to, to relish contact. To, to get poor contact more times than not. And if you're trying to get poor contact, if you have electric stuff, you have really good stuff, you're probably going to get the strikeouts because you're going to be ahead in the count 0-2-1-2 two, two, 
and then you can go to your put away pitches. So, you know, we, we encourage guys to, to force contact, get these guys out of the box, three, four pitches or less, and see where it goes. Because you get bad contact, and sometimes not, we're going to pick that ball up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and one guy who does have pretty good swing and miss stuff is Kyle Wright, last year's first round pick. Uh, Braves have obviously been very aggressive with him, starting him out at Double A to begin the year. He's made four starts with you guys, uh, struck out twenty five and twenty five two thirds innings so far. Um, you know, being somebody who was in college last year, how do you feel like he's handled that adjustment to Triple A? You know. I know the SEC is obviously a good conference. He comes from a good pitching school in Vanderbilt, but uh, to be where he is already is really significant. Um, you know, how do you feel like he's handled that adjustment to AAA, and what's been the most eye-opening thing about working with him so far? Yeah, I think he's handled it very well. He's a mature kid. Um, you know, he, he's, he's got a workman's attitude. He comes to the bar, hey, what are we working on today? You can ask him that question. This is what I want to do. Okay, side day. What are we looking at? This is what I want to do. Okay, sounds good. You know, he's, he's pitched well. Um, you know, he's, he's another guy that, that has a power fastball. He has a couple breaking balls, and he's still working on the changeup. The changeup has been good for him. And the fact that, you know, he's, he's at a level at AAA where you got some guys that have played in the big leagues, some big league experienced guys, guys that know how to do damage and triple counts and things like that, that all of our guys and, and Kyle's included are understanding, hey, I can't just, throw this ball right down the middle here and, and expect them out. I'm going to go ahead and make a quality pitch and get, get the results I want. But, you know, he's been he's been as good as we can expect him to be. And he, like I said, he comes to the ballpark every day, ready to work, and uh, it's a no-nonsense attitude he has. There's, there's no panic, you know. We have questions, we talk, and, you know, we go from there. But it's just been fun watching him grow as a pitcher also. Yeah, and when you mentioned he's now getting to work with guys who have been in the major leagues before, um, when do when guys do come back down like that after so quick, do you feel like they're sharing information about what that is like? I mean, how how much are they? How much is it, of it is it a competition for these guys to to come up and try to beat each other out for that next spot start? And how much are they trying to you know improve each other and uh, bring back scouting reports based on what they've seen? I think they're, they're pulling for each other. You know, of course, there's a competition because every one of these guys, their ultimate goal is to be in the big leagues and be successful in the big leagues. And they come down, they, they talk about exactly what happened, how they pitched. And the other guys that were down here in AAA, they watch those starts. And they're like, hey, you did this good, you did this good, this looks really good. And they do that outing to outing. Uh, you'll see these guys watching videos together at times, you know, scouting reports on on other hitters. They're, they're curious, they're asking questions, they're looking for information, and you know, they, they use it and they apply it when they go out there. It's, it's, a, it's something special because you watch, you look down the, the bench and you'll see these four guys, five guys, all sitting together. You know, they're all sitting together watching the ball game, talking about pitching, come over and ask questions about certain situations. So the competition that they have between each other doesn't interfere in the relationship and it definitely pushes all of them to be better. Yeah, one more individual guy I just want to ask about quick is, is Luis Gohara. He returned on August 16th uh, through three and two-thirds innings, 54 pitches, coming off kind of a left shoulder issue for him. Uh, what's his status been of late? I know he's returned now, so he's probably scheduled to come back pretty soon. Um, but 
what, what kind of year have you seen him go through? Because it, it hasn't been – it's been a rough year both on the injury side and the results side. He's got a 5.14 ERA and 11 starts with you guys. Uh, what kind of year has it been for Gohara, and what have you seen out of him now that he's back? Yeah, he's had, he's had some, some minor injuries, you know, but nothing serious. Um, he still has a swing miss slider, and he's still, you know, trying to get healthy right now. He'll be pitching the back end of the doubleheader for us tonight. It'll be a second start since uh, since the 29th of uh, July. So if he continues to work, he's, he's going at it, um, just basically trying to get his stuff under wraps because there's been some, some good things and some bad things, but the biggest thing is, is for him to be on the mound so that he can improve and he can get into a good rhythm so that he's needed at the big league level, but be ready to call the ball. Gotcha. All right, we'll, we'll end on kind of a fun one, Reed. Uh, looking over your bio, uh, one of the things I like to ask guys about when, when I get the chance is, you know, what experience they had with the Montreal Expos. You got some experience, obviously, you were drafted in the 11th round of the 1988 draft by the Expos. Um, coming up through them, you played three major league seasons with them. You also got some time in Ottawa, which is now an, another defunct Canadian team. Uh, what kind of memories do you have of playing either with Ottawa or Montreal? Uh, some of these places that are now closed in Canadian baseball, but you obviously got some to spend some time there before they they got closed down. Uh, it was it was always just, uh, I got nothing but positive memories. Uh, Montreal, Ottawa. A lot of the Canadian cities we played in, I just it seems like, you know, it, it was very fun. It was very interesting. Uh, Montreal was loaded with some talent. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be around some some very special players there, and you get to learn from them and and hopefully improve. Uh, the competition we had in the minor league there was was outstanding. We had a lot of lot of good pitching prospects, a lot of good hitting prospects there. But the uh, both the cities, I mean, Ottawa and Montreal were great cities. Uh, the people were great, and it always seemed like the place was geared to be outdoors because I'm sure they don't get out a whole lot in the winter. But uh, the jogging trails, bicycle trails, it seems like everybody, as soon as that sun came out, everybody was outside, and it was packed on uh, the parks and things like that. But uh, just uh, special places and uh, uh, good memories. Yeah, very cool. And, and uh, you know, Montreal always fe- felt like uh, it was kind of in an era of rebuild, um, but the Braves now, you know, used to join the organization last year. I've been part of the Marlins for a long time. Uh, last year was definitely a rebuild. Now it's not. What What is it like going through that transition from last year? You were a pitching coach of a, a team that was just trying to foster talent, just trying to grow everybody. Now you're growing it into legit major league talent. Uh, what has the change been like between 2017 and 2018 for you? It's not much of a change. I mean, it's a little bit more. Uh, expected of the guys when they go up there now. You know, we're still just trying to, to produce major league players, get guys ready to pitch in the big league, and to, to remind them, hey, you know, there are certain things you need to work on here. Uh, doesn't matter if, you know, you go out there and just pitch with just your fastball today. You might want to throw a few breaking balls because when you get to the big leagues, you're going to need to do that. So don't forget about that. Uh, you want to remember what your strengths are, uh, but remember there are some, some other areas you're going to have to use and need to focus on improving those to get to the big leagues. And, I mean, it's been a blast to watch uh, the Braves do what they've done. I mean, I think it's taught everybody about your size a little bit. Uh, talented players up there playing very well. And, like I said, we've, we've seen several of us, the kids that played here last year, this year, go up there and help. And it's just been a really fun year. All right. Well, 
That's all I have for you. Reed Cornelius, pitching coach of the AAA Gwinnett Stripers in the Atlanta Brave system. Like we just said, very exciting year, very, very exciting couple weeks with all the guys getting called up. Uh, Reed, thanks so much for joining us, and good luck the rest of the way down there in uh, Gwinnett. Thanks a lot, Sam. I appreciate it. Well, normally Tyler gets to introduce these segments, but I'll be the one to bring Benjamin Hill into the show uh, this week. It's just the two of us. Do you want to say where you're sitting, or should I say where I'm sitting? How, how does this work now that it's just the two of us? Well, I was going to let it develop naturally, but now we're kind of on the spot. Um, I am Ben Hill sitting to Sam Dykstra's left in conference room 5M in the uh, Chelsea. 5N. Mind. 5N, I'm sorry. So if you were trying to locate us. Uh, yeah. 5N. 24 hours after we talk about all this stuff. Yeah, we are in a... It's a very nice conference room. Uh, not much to speak of in the way of decor. Um, but there's uh, lights and chairs and a table, and we're good to go. And internet, thankfully, so we can actually record this. And yeah. All got, the amenities we need. We've got everything we need. We, why don't we just, like, set up camp here and stay well? <laughs> this, this is our new office space. If anybody needs to find us for the next, what, two weeks of the season, this is where we'll be working out exclusively. That's right. Uh, so this past weekend was a really cool one for you. You got to go back to your home state of Pennsylvania. Uh, got to go see the Williamsport. Well, you got to go to Williamsport, we should say, and you got to go to State College. Uh, Williamsport, you were there for the Little League game between the Phillies and the Mets, Major League Baseball taking over a minor league stadium. Uh, what was the atmosphere like for that? I think a lot of people kind of got to see what it was like in terms of, you know, Reese Hoskins talking to Big Al, uh, major leaguers interacting with little leaguers. But what was it like from the minor league side and seeing a stadium like that where the crosscutters play taken over by, you know, the big leagues? That was a truly surreal experience. I mean, this game happened on Sunday night. It was on Sunday Night Baseball. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably understand the concept behind it. But it does take a little explanation. It's the Little League Classic featuring a major league game at a minor league field. So it's not maybe the most intuitive thing going. Uh, but Bowman Field, where the game is played, you know, it was last Sunday night between the Mets and the Phillies. You know, it's the home of the crosscutters usually. It's a 92-year-old stadium. I mean, one of the oldest professional ballparks in the country. Um, capacity 2,500, and they're playing a major league game there. And uh, what I focused on in my story, which you can read on the website MILB.com. Great which, website. Yeah, it's, it's really cool um, for those keeping score at home. It's the official website of Minor League Baseball. Um, you know, I focused on the, the minor league side of it in terms of I spoke to Gabe Sinacrapi, the uh, vice president of marketing, marketing for the Cutters. Kind of what's it like on their end? They're running a you know comparatively bare bones Class A short season operation. They have something like you know maybe five full time employees, and then all of a sudden there's a major league game there once a year, uh, last year and this year, and it's uh, going to continue into 2019 as well. And you know what really struck me about this, and in talking to Gabe. Um, is the amount of planning that goes into this game. Yes, on the baseball schedule and the Major League schedule, it's one out of 162. But Major League Baseball sets up their so-called operations compound outside of the ballpark about three weeks prior to the event. Uh, So you go to the stadium uh, for the Little League Classic, and you don't just pull up to the ballpark. It's basically surrounded by tents and trailers, the operations compound of Major League Baseball, who are running virtually every aspect of the event. So it's kind of surreal for the team to kind of have to step back and then just not really be a part of the operation. And, uh, you know, in talking to Gabe, he was like, you know, it's as if someone comes to your house and says, we're going to stay for three weeks. And, (laughs) oh, on the last night, we're going to have a party. Yeah. And uh, And invite all of our friends and all that. The the, uh, quote that he used, that was my favorite from your story, I think. Yeah, it's a good quote. I mean, uh, 
you know, and, and as he told me, it's a little disconcerting. Um, I think he and the team had more problems with it last year in terms of how to balance it and work this out with Major League Baseball coming in and the sort of, I don't want to say turf wars, because I think war is a strong term, but you know, the, the, the tension that results from having to sort of seed large um, aspects of your operation and just have it out of your control, both for the game itself and also for a lot of the time leading to the event. So it's a really strange thing to be happening uh, in a minor league baseball context. But for any hassles that occur for the team, and operationally it's difficult for them, because again, Major League Baseball is there for three weeks prior to the event, um, and they're still running, you know, they're in the midst of their, you know, crosscutters are playing. They're in the midst of the New York Penn League schedule, so their parking gets messed up, and, you know, they're operationally, they're a little conflicted. Um, but at the end of the day, what do they have? I mean, they have a major league game taking place in their field. And as Gabe told me, you know, we are the center of the baseball universe right now. And they really are. The Sunday night game during the Little League World Series. Williamsport, PA, of all places, is literally the center of the baseball universe for the time that this is taking place. And not to mention, I mean, obviously Bowman Field is up to professional minor league baseball standards just by virtue of being a minor league team. And Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball, you know, have an agreement in place through the PBA, professional baseball agreement, um, you know, about the standards that facilities must be kept up to. But there's a difference between the standards that Major League Baseball has for a minor league affiliate versus the standards that Major League Baseball has for playing an actual Major League game on the field. So a huge benefit of this for the crosscutters and for Bowman Field has been what Major League Baseball has done to the field in order to play the Little League Classic. I mean, to the field itself, an all-new playing field, new seats, a new party area down the right field line, a batter's eye installed. Uh, you know, where there's like camera wells from center field, which you don't see very often in a minor league ballpark. Uh, the bullpens were, uh, are now behind the outfield fences, uh, like a major league club would have in most cases, uh, as opposed to being down the lines. And uh, you, know, you could go on and on. So there's been a tremendous facelift for an older facility, which was in decent enough shape as it was, but a tremendous facelift, safe, the facelift for uh, Bowman Field as a, resu- as a result of the Little League Classic. Uh, a lot of publicity for Williamsport and the Crosscutters operation just by virtue of being involved. And having been there, just a really cool event to witness. I mean, it was surreal for me, too, to be you know in the... Uh, kind of hanging out in the camera well area down the first base line, leaning over the fence, watching the game, and constantly having to remind myself, this is a major league game that's yeah. counting in the standings <laughs> uh, between the Mets and the Phillies. I mean, I just it was it was absolutely surreal. Um, but for me, it was a very different night because usually I'm doing my thing. Got the designated eater might take place and might take part in a between inning contest. Um, you know, doing random interviews of ballpark characters. And this time, you know, it was an entirely major league operation. So I felt like I, I didn't even really know what to do with myself. Uh, but just witness it, take it all in, and document it as best as I could because this is not the sort of thing you're able to be a part of very often. And I felt lucky to be there because, um, you know, as media, because this is not a ticketed event. This is not something that people get to go to. Um, again, there's just a capacity of 2,500 people, and, uh, you know, that's almost all given over to the Little League teams and uh, people associated with the players on those teams, as well as then people associated with Major League Baseball, the Phillies, and the Mets. Uh, but it's not open to the public, although there was a cool element to it of just local fans you know setting up down the uh third base side outside of the ballpark watching the game and Didn't i they s- cut down a tree 
Wasn't that one thing like somebody like actually cut down branches on a tree and set up scaffolding to well, watch from the outside? There are, t- you know, th- and this is such a small town stadium. Beyond the outfield fence are just people's backyards and you know, in fairly modest homes in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And I saw at least two scaffolding uh, scaffolds rising from these backyards. Uh, where people were set up on scaffolds that were erected in people's backyards that were high enough to, you know, see over the outfield fence and take in the game. And, I mean, and how cool is that if, one, I think it would be pretty cool to live just near a minor league stadium like that, let alone uh, be able to set up a scaffold in your backyard and uh, watch a major league game is is pretty cool. And it uh, it just added to the atmosphere. Yeah, and and you kind of touched on it a little bit, but uh, so much of what you do normally is try to see how a game is fitting into the community, what it's like to be in that area. You know, your slogan is exploring America through minor league baseball. This was not a minor league baseball event. This was very much a national event, right down to, like you said, uh, the community not really being allowed in. It was mostly little leaguers and little league associated folks getting to watch, you know, from the stands. Uh, But how much was the community involved in this? How much was Williamsport promoting it as a team? Uh, How involved were they in terms of, you know, fulfilling media requests and all that? Or was it completely from start to finish a Major League Baseball event? It really was start to finish a Major League event. Um, You know, in terms of uh, you know, going to the game, it's not like I just reached out to the crosscutters like I normally would and they'd say, hey, we'll put, you know, we'll give you a credential at the press box. You know, I had to email credentials at MLB.com or whatever the case may be right. and go internally through their processes. Everything was through uh, Major League Baseball processes. That's that. that uh, that's not to say the crosscutters had no um, aspect with it. You know, the ushers were crosscutters employees. Uh, the front office staff was on hand to provide directions and you know put out little you know put out fires as it were, uh, if any issues arose. Uh, all the food and beverage was done by the crosscutters, um, as they would in a normal game. And I was I was talking to a woman at the concession stand. It's in the article, and she was saying uh, one of the most interesting aspects of this night is how many of the kids don't speak English, and. You know, in terms of com- them communicating to the concession stand workers what they want by you know pointing and trying to figure out uh, what this is, and she's like, ah, you'll see kids, you know, put hot sauce on a on a hot dog because they think it's ketchup and that sort of thing, and uh, you know, just a small detail, but I like that sort of thing, this type of thing you wouldn't think of, but uh, that does affect uh, how the night proceeds. Right, and speaks to how much of it. It's not just a national event, but an international event, really, uh, between you know teams from Asia, Africa. Mexico, you know, all, all over the place. Uh, so really cool. Then you go from that, you stay in the New York Penn League, you stay in Pennsylvania, you go to State College Spikes on Monday. What can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, I mean, I drove right from Williamsport on uh, Sunday night to State College, about an hour drive, and uh, spent all of Monday in State College to see the Spikes. You know, that's the way the schedule worked out. They weren't home over the weekend. So, you know, I felt a little guilty that I haven't been to State College in eight years, which is you know, a very long time, and I show up on a you know pretty, you know pretty fairly dead Monday. Um, you know, st- uh, school had just started at Penn State. I think it was the first day of classes, and so everything was kind of in a transitional uh, vibe over at State College. Both nights I was there when I got in on Sunday night, and also on Monday night after the game, it was fl- and I stayed in downtown State College. It was a full-on party scene, like you'd think. And, and I forget what day it is when I'm on the road anyway. And I thought it was the weekend. And after a while, I was like, "Wait a second! This is a Sunday and Monday night, <laughs> and there were just you know these like 
these hordes of college kids just walking up and down. Playing right into their stereotypes. Yes, I couldn't believe it. There was a, across the street from the hotel, there was a house party that looked like out of central casting for a, ho- a college house party. People Were all togas? Not quite that, but just... Uh, <laughs> And Biggie Smalls coming from, they were playing Biggie Smalls when I pulled up, and I was just like, man, that's the same type of party music I would have heard I when say, I was yeah, in college. The youth still have taste. <laughs> what, what amazing. Unbelievable. Amazing. But uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, where I'm talking about is Medlar Field at Lubrano Park, <laughs> the home of the State College Spikes. You know, I enjoyed this night. They had a fun time. I, I like the spirit of the Spikes. Um, it was a Monday night. It happened to be National Radio Day, so they had that as their promotion. You know, that's not the kind of promotion where people are going to be like, "Oh, you know, oh, honey, they're um, celebrating National Radio today." Yeah, I have a radio in my car. This means we have to go. Yeah, but just little things they did throughout the night um, on the staircases of railings leading down uh, to the seats. They just posted facts about radio and radio announcers. Just one of those like goofy things you see in minor league baseball. Um, my favorite element of it, and it, just, it made me laugh the whole night long, um, was that for the visiting teams walk-up music, which happened to be the Williamsport Crosscutters, who I didn't actually get to see play in Williamsport. Home, yeah. yeah. Um, the, so for all the Crosscutters walk-up music in State College, because it was National Radio Day, the Spikes played Radiohead songs. I mean, which are not pump up music. And that was so funny about it. I mean, one, that's a very tenuous connection anyway, just Radiohead and National Radio Day. But a lot of those songs, and they played dozens and dozens of them, you know, are atonal, kind of wispy and floating and uh, a little off putting. And uh, I think Radiohead are certainly one of the most. Uh, avant-garde or kind of hard to listen to bands that have hit the mainstream in, in recent years and and to hear these you know tom york's vocals floating over these like skittery beats and uh you know wispy piano atmospheres um all night long at the ballpark was pretty surreal especially because it was one of those only minor league baseball nights where it was the completion of a suspended game followed by a seven inning game uh, so especially when the night started at 5 30 you know fans weren't really there yet because the game was technically technically supposed to start at seven so there's almost no one in the ballpark and there's like tom york's voice warbling all over the place and there's facts about radio posted on the railings and it was just kind of surreal i enjoyed it and it was joe putnam's birthday who happens to be the team's uh longtime radio broadcaster he wore a crown and uh robe and carried a scepter all night long and got pied atop the dugout at one point and uh, so they really played that up as well so you know it wasn't a, a super well attended night it was a monday night as i said in a transitional time of year it didn't rain, but it was kind of dark weather. So, you know, not the kind of night that a team would love for me to show up at, you know, when it's normally when you want some energy. Right. But, you know, they made the most of it, and I had a good time. I hadn't been there in years. Uh, so I apologize to Spikes for coming on a Monday, but it was a fun Monday. I had a good time. And honestly, like, I get more out of those stories when you are there, when it's not a big night, when it's not a big promo night, something like that. You're seeing Star Wars nights that are across everybody. You know, everybody has one of those now. I get more out of hearing that a a ballpark plays Radiohead songs for the opposing club. Like, that is genius. Yeah. That is so good for something that's just a random Monday in August. Yeah, I mean, and I love that kind of thing. And that's why, you know, when I get uh, some guff from teams and and there's the whole uh, joke that, you know, when I write a book about all this, it'll be called You Should Have Been Here Yesterday because that's that's what it always is. And, you know, this isn't a good night. You know, you should have been here for this or that. But for me, it's like when you're there on the quote – 
you know, quote unquote, off nights or bad nights. To me, that's where you get to see a team you know, shine in a way because you get to see the energy and effort they put into the nights that aren't going to get a lot of fans. And I think when you do have teams like the Spikes, um, you know, just going all out for something like National Radio Day uh, speaks to the spirit of the operation, which translates to doing well when there are big nights as well. So, and it's kind of more fun for me in a lot of ways to to witness that, like you said. So, I think there's a real benefit to that. And uh, you know, if you're a fan of minor league baseball, you're trying to go to games all throughout the year, and uh, it's not about just going to one or two nights of the quote unquote best nights. So, it's about having fun as much as you can for 70 nights a year, or in the case of the New York Penn League 38 nights a year Um, and so why not just go for it and uh, that's what I really like to see yeah and so we'll go from that radio night kind of promo to talking about your upcoming promo preview Uh, I don't know if anything's gonna get you more excited about this story than the fact that you actually got to use penultimate in the headline Uh, but still what what promos are coming out in the next week that kind of have you excited? Yeah, well, we're heading up, uh, believe it or not, on the penultimate weekend of the uh, minor league season. And uh, last week and this week as well, I've been able to kind of sneak in a promo preview column. They become tougher for me to write, uh, you know, as the year goes on and I'm on the road and just have a lot of road content, but try to keep up on the promos. So as we're coming up on the penultimate weekend, I got a column that'll be on the site uh, tomorrow, Thursday, when this uh, podcast drops as well. And uh, I think there's a lot going on, so I hope you check out the uh, check out the column uh syracuse uh, are playing four straight nights as the salt potatoes and they have two bizarre giveaways during this uh, homestand on thursday uh they're giving away a quote upside down traffic light slash salt potato snow globe because those two mix yeah. just so easily. It, it, whatever you're picturing at home is exactly how it looks i'm sure i'm sure and in a lot of cases i can provide you know being in my quote unquote keep saying quote-unquote <laughs> expert role um you can you say know, quote-unquote expert that's fine. right yeah quote-unquote expert um you know a lot of times it's my job to provide context for things that initially might not make sense but i say okay here's why it makes sense this is one where i still don't quite know why it makes sense i can tell you that the upside down traffic light is a real thing in a, a small town i remember we talked about that in the off season yeah, yeah. tipperary hill uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, but that's nearby. Syrac- it's near Syracuse, and it has this famous upside-down traffic light where, you know, uh, it had something to do with like the Irish and the British, didn't it? Yeah, where green is on the bottom and. Uh or no, the other way around. Yeah, green is on the top. Green is on the top yeah. and red is on the bottom. It has something to do with the community's Irish heritage and right. uh, something against the British, and I wish I knew the specifics well, it was it of that more or less just how dare the green light be below the red light. Right, so exactly. Gonna, so yeah. this is this is some Irish pride. Um, then the Rochester comes into town against Syracuse for the next three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And on Saturday, if you thought a upside-down traffic light slash salt potato snow globe was a little too um, mundane for your taste, they're giving away a bobblehead of a salt potato, an anthropomorphic salt potato, standing on the logo of a Rochester plate. And um, that's because this that'll is the, teach him. Yeah, that'll teach him. That's because this is a duel of the dishes in which all three games against Rochester, Syracuse is playing as the salt potatoes, you know, their regional delicacy, which, you know, what is better than potatoes and salt? salt. 
against uh, the plates, which Rochester plates, which is a reference to garbage plates, which often includes salt potatoes because Rochester and Syracuse, you know, share a common heritage right, to, to a large degree. Away, right. um, but it's plates versus salt potatoes, and uh, since Syracuse is at home, you know, they're giving away this bobblehead of an angry, sneering salt potato with a pat of melted butter on his head, uh, standing atop the Rochester Plates logo. So take that, Rochester, the duel of the dishes. Is the butter supposed to be his hair? Is it supposed to be? Is he bleeding from the cranium? I just have so many. He's angry either way. Yeah, these are open to interpretations. Yeah. Uh, so that that's a good one. Then the next night, and this you know also segues into the into my next trip. Um, Aberdeen, the Iron Birds, are playing as the steamed crabs for the second night in a row, I, or second year in a row. I will be there on Friday to take that all in. Uh, they will take the field as the steamed crabs, and there will be a uh, you know crab feast at the ballpark for those who buy that upgraded ticket. All you can eat crabs, team logo mallet, and uh, you know I did not recruit an all uh, designated eater for this game because crabs are gluten free. Oh, you can actually. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know how I'll document that, but I plan on sitting down during the game. Uh, with a mallet and just going to town on some crabs, that's that's for sure. So, and I also I haven't been into Aberdeen since 2011, so uh, overdue to visit them. And that'll be the fifth and final stop, uh, New York Penn League stop of of August. You know, I was in Brooklyn and Staten Island last week, and then had uh, Williamsport and uh, State College this past weekend. And uh, I'm losing track of time. And then Friday, <laughs> Friday, Aberdeen Ironbirds. And then I will actually make a return engagement on August 31st to Staten Island because I won a bubblegum bubble blowing competition there last time I was there. Uh, so I'm going to take on Kerp of Aqua, who uh, was featured in the 1975 Tops card as the uh, bubblegum blowing champion. And uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. And then the following day, I'll go to Colorado to visit uh, Colorado Springs and Grand Junction, the final two ballparks uh, I've yet to get to in the affiliated world. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So we can talk to, talk about that next week. And so anyway, read read the column. Other things in there. Clearwater suit. Everything. See, in writing these columns, I'm always talking about teams and alternate identities. And then I keep saying the team will either suit up or the team will take the field. And I need more ways to <laughs> to express that. But Clearwater Threshers are, quote-unquote, suiting up as uh, the beach dogs for their what-could-have-been night. Uh, an interesting one to me is, uh, speaking of what-could-have-been night, uh, Bowling Green Hot Rods initiated that concept back in 2009 when they uh, were the cave shrimp. And that was the first ever what could have been night where right. a team suits up uh, as an identity that they could have chosen in their name the team contest. So now Bowling Green, uh, almost a decade later, is now introducing a new concept. Instead of what could have been night, uh, on Saturday they're going to have what we were night. And they're going to play as the Columbus Catfish or the Bowling Green Catfish because what they were before they were the Bowling Green Hot Rods was the Columbus Catfish. That was the franchise that moved to Bowling Green. That's just throwback, though. That's all that is. I like what we were night better. I mean, uh, yeah, sure. But you don't often see throwbacks from a previous uh, locale. You know, you might see a throwback for a previous iteration of the team's identity. You usually don't see them say, our franchise used to play in this totally different city, and we're going to celebrate that. So the Columbus, Georgia catfish will be uh, commemorated in Bowling Green on what we were night. Um, Charleston River Dogs uh, paying tribute to Toys R Us with Toys For Us night with a toy drive. Jeff- Jeffrey the Giraffe will be on hand. Uh, Frisco Rough Riders playing as the Corny Dogs. Um, as a salute to the Texas State Fair, where corny dogs are one of the premier concession items. And finally, the Iron Pigs uh, doing their salute to Philadelphia night 
which started their first uh, salute to Philadelphia night was when they were the cheesesteaks uh, two years ago. This year's salute to Philly, uh, Philadelphia night is a tribute to the Super Bowl winning Eagles, who, if you recall, beat the uh, New England Patriots, Sam. I, I do recall. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, their jerseys that the Iron Pigs are wearing are Eagles-themed jerseys, and they have a diagram of the Philly special on it, the, you know, the, the trick play. I, I also recall Troy that, yes. Burton to... Nick Foles uh, at the end of the first half to give the Eagles a 22-12 lead in the game that they would ultimately win. Um, so that's great. That's it's all great. It's it's certainly great if you're in the Lehigh area and you're an Eagles fan. Uh, so yeah, so that's plenty to look forward to this weekend. Uh, ben, enjoy the trip to Aberdeen. I, I look forward to you actually being your own designated eater. Are you going to wear the shirt? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, maybe I will. I don't have my own designated either shirt, so I might, I might have to do that. Will you wear a shirt with your own face on it? I think is what this is. I will. Add. You know, I have a Ben's Biz shirt that is just, it's not a designated either shirt, it's just one with my logo. Right. And I almost never wear it. The one time I wore it out in public was to see Weird Al on the night I was going to meet him as part of my VIP package. And I just wanted to tell Weird Al, like, look, man, I'm Weird Ben. I got my own shirt. I gave Weird Al my baseball card, too. Um, I didn't like the way our photo came out, so I was really disappointed by it. Anyways, neither here nor there. Anyways, well, thank you, (laughs) Weird Ben, for joining us, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. I look forward to it. A big thanks a couple of segments ago to Reed Cornelius of the Gwinnett Stripers and Benjamin Hill. Um, there was one story that came up last week, the business of minor league baseball, that uh, we didn't get a, a chance to talk with Ben about, but wanted to discuss a little bit, Sam, um, before uh, final details come out on it. It's not a, a final go yet, but the Pawtucket Red Sox appear to possibly be on the move. Yeah, so uh, last week, you know, th- this has been something that we've talked about, not necessarily on the show so much, but has been bandied about for a while now. What is the future of the Pawtucket Red Sox? Uh, a couple years ago, there was maybe a proposal for them to move to Providence. Uh, then Pawtucket was trying to throw its hat back in the ring and either, you know, I don't know if they were trying to renovate McCoy or I think they were going to build a new ballpark all entirely. Um, but last week, the ownership group of the Pawtucket Red Sox announced in Worcester, Massachusetts, that they intend to move the team from Pawtucket to Worcester. They have plans drawn up for a stadium. Uh, Looks really neat, uh, kind of in Worcester proper. That wouldn't happen until the 2021 season. That being said, and this is something that Ben and I have stressed when we've talked about this uh, because it's happened before, just because a team announces its intention and the city got super excited and everybody back home where I'm from got super excited, the amount of texts I got of like, oh, what do you know about this? Uh, which was I knew as much as everybody else in terms of what they were announcing. Uh, it's not official and it's not finalized until the city and the state officially vote on funding for the new stadium. Uh, the league has to approve it. Minor League Baseball has technically trademarked the phrase Woo Sox. Uh, which, you know, there's the Paw Sox huh. now. The nickname would be Woo Sox. It wouldn't are be the Worcester. Spell it, are they going to spell it W-O-R-C-H Sox? But make people no. call it Woo Sox? No. Oh, okay. No. Oh, it, just checking. It would it would be the Worcester Red Sox. The nickname would be Woo Sox in the same way the Paw Sox, are, that's their nickname. Yeah. And and I'm not here for your yeah. central Massachusetts slander. <laughs> Tyler, we're not. I'm, we're not spending paw, a moment more the on that. The first three letters of Pawtucket are in Paw Sox, so I feel like it should be W O R C H Sox. No, no, that's no. 
No, that's not how any of that works. Uh, they did announce that I think it was going to be called Polar Park, which is named after the seltzer soda company that is based out of Worcester, uh, which has me thinking, like, if that goes through, maybe they could keep the polar bear mascot. Yeah, I was going to say that's very fitting. Yeah, right. they wouldn't have to change branding too much, et cetera. I'm sure they still will because it's you know a new opportunity and all that. But anyways, that wouldn't happen until I think 2021 at the earliest. Uh, so there's the potential for only two more seasons of Pawtucket baseball. But you know, in a city closer to me, where I grew up in Springfield, Massachusetts, there was a time where the Harrisburg Senators were going to be moving up to Springfield. Everything got announced in the same way Worcester just did it. The Eastern League was about to approve it. And then Harrisburg announced that they were actually going to stay. Um, so we're going to stay on this. We'll talk about this more in the offseason and more as things become more solid. Uh, but just wanted to throw that out there because it was such a big event across minor league baseball last week. MILB.TV is your place to catch up with the best in minor league baseball as we enter the final two weeks of the season, which is insane. But Sam, what are you watching on MILB.TV this week? Yeah, I mean, I'm still on Vlad watch. I'm I'm. Yeah. Going to be watching all of Vlad's game as much as I can. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. for everybody who doesn't know. And if you don't know, I'm really surprised you found this podcast. But welcome. Thank you for listening to yeah. this whole thing. Uh, it took us this long to talk about Vladimir Guerrero Jr., which is a, a small miracle in itself. Currently, as we're recording, he's hitting 394. Looking to obviously hit 400 uh, would be one of the first to do that across a full minor league season in decades. Uh, that'll be really cool. It, it, it feels like undue pressure that we're putting on him to get to 400 because he could hit 350 the rest of the way and that average would still go down, which is nuts because he is. That's amazing. He is a 19 year old playing at AAA, um, but the AAA Buffalo Bisons, AAA affiliate of the Toronto Blue Jays, of which you know Vladimir Guerrero Jr. belongs to. Uh, they are playing Pawtucket this weekend. Tune into as many games as you can of Vlad. The season's going to end. He's not going to get called up to the majors, barring a miracle. Uh, get as much Vlad as you can before the season is out and see him try to chase 400. I mean, he he has it in him to get there in a way. Uh, if I, I was to bet on any bat in the minor leagues, and I'm not just saying prospects, I'm talking about uh, you know 30-year-olds. I'm talking about veterans who have been around forever. If there's somebody who's going to hit 400 this year, it's going to be Vlad over any stretch. Um, so tune in while you can this weekend. Buffalo and Pawtucket, uh, that'll be must-watch stuff this weekend going forward the rest of the way. Uh, I'm going to go to the AA Eastern League. Um, the Baltimore Orioles have not had a whole lot to be excited about this year at the major league level, but at the minor league level, some uh, things coming along. Uh, the Alma, Michigan native and Western Michigan product, Keegan Aiken, has been fantastic for Double A Bowie this season. He was just named Eastern League Pitcher of the Week, um, and Keegan Aiken is uh, set to go to the mound, I believe, on Friday. He last pitched on the 19th, um, so I think Friday will be the next start date for Keegan Aiken, but you can check that out at MILB.TV as he and the Bowie Bay Sox um, take to the field this weekend coming up for uh, an Eastern League matchup. We get close to the final couple of starts of the season for these guys. And, um, you know, it's interesting with pitchers because at this stretch of the year, obviously they're, um, you know, going to, to full pitch counts. There's no limits or anything on that. But these guys are exhausted by the end of the season. So for those players who are finishing strong, I think it tells you a lot about guys who are on good rolls toward the end of the year. And Keegan Egan has certainly been that way for uh, – for double a buoy so you can keep an eye on him 14 and 6 with a 2.77 era so far this season is keegan aiken and uh, he and the buoy bay Sox will be taking on the eerie sea wolves coming up this weekend and that will do it 
for this week's episode of the show before the show podcast i miss anything no i think that's it i think we got it all covered all right good um (laughs) we got all the minor leagues covered we got everything covered we covered absolutely everything and you're welcome america hey sam dykstra i'm tyler we'll talk to you next week (laughs) we